comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Are you dead? Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Jeremy Bai for another episode of the Righteous Blood Podcast. And tonight we're going to be talking about a Chinese ghost story. This is a um, uh, a movie starring Joey Wong and Leslie Chung and Wu Ma. It's directed by Ching Sui Tung, who directed movies like Swordsman 2 and Duel to the Death and a bunch of really great movies. Um, and it's, a, uh, I think it was a Choi Hark production. It's a classic film. It's sort of a blend of horror, comedy, and romance. And it's about a, a lowly, sort of poor, somewhat gullible, I would say, scholar played by Leslie Chung, who falls in love with a ghost and finds out that she's uh, being controlled by this ancient demonic tree that has her 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 urn at the base of its uh, of it, of its roots. And he has to rescue her and bring her to a proper burial. And there's a crazy swordsman played by Wu Ma. And there's a lot that goes on that I'm just glossing over. Because this movie, this is like a, would you say this is a very gonzo movie, Jeremy? Which Is that an accurate label to affix yeah, to it? Yeah, although it could have been more, but yeah. But, I mean, I think it's it's a movie that starts as almost like a classic horror movie. And by the end, they're like in hell fighting this like, I don't know, some kind of, unearthly magistrate from what i can tell and uh i don't know it, it, it's got it's got a lot of beats um and it's and it's got, it's peppered with all of these little comedic moments um so i don't know i i've never i don't know if we've ever discussed this film so what's your what what are your feelings about a chinese ghost story i don't think we have discussed in fact i know we haven't discussed it and um before giving my take i just want to say up front before it gets we get too far in and forget to to mention it we're kind of starting up a new sort of series of, of uh, Righteous Blood podcasts because we're currently kind of exploring the possibility of doing some kind of expansion or, or extra content related to magic and the supernatural. And so that's kind of why we're doing this. Um, and that's what we're going to be doing going forward. We're currently creating new content, play testing, and at the same time, watching movies and doing the podcast so as you listen along you can kind of uh be a part of the creative process to some extent so getting into the movie itself now my initial summary is that i just really like it it's a great movie um a lot of fun a lot of cool action sequences a lot of cool magic sequences for people who are fans of my work who are out there one of the main characters that Brendan you just mentioned uh, is a is a Taoist priest or of something along those lines, and he does some kind of cool magic-based wuxia attacks, and then of course you have demons and ghosts and different things like that. So definitely lot a lot more fantastic than the stuff that you and I have for the most part talked about on on the Righteous Blood podcast, yeah. and definitely more fantastic than the stuff that we have in Righteous Blood Ruthless Blade. So I really liked it. Now, here's something that I realized when I was watching this movie. I actually have, up until preparing for this podcast, I have actually never watched this entire movie. I didn't oh, realize wow. it. Okay. Yeah, it, because it's been years. Um, I 
uh, got into Usha in starting in the year 2000. And it was probably from around the year 2000 to roughly 2000 and maybe six or seven that I was really heavily just watching everything. Mm. In recalling this movie, uh, as I've thought back to it in recent years, since we started doing Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, and I've really started thinking back to movies and whatnot, my impression of the movie was always that it ended with this gigantic tree tongue fight scene. Yeah. And then as I was watching it this time around, all of a sudden the movie kept going and I was like, wait a second, I don't remember any of this stuff. And I, for the so, life oh, of so me, you, so that was your first time seeing the actual ending of the yeah, movie? Yeah, I, I don't oh, know. Wow. I have no conscious memory of why that happened. Now, I have a couple of theories. One is it could be that I thought it was too weird, possibly. Hmm. I, I don't recall that, though. So another possibility is that now if you, if you have to you know, put yourself in the mindset of the sort of early 2000s, this is back in the in the day when Netflix would send you a couple DVDs and then you would send them back in the mail. Yeah. Uh, Blockbuster was still everywhere. We had local video DVD rental shops, and that was how I got most of my Usha movies. Yeah. I rented them from the the either Blockbuster or there was like this really niche video shop in the cool quirky part of town that I would go and they had a lot of stuff. It's also possible that I like rented it and then. You know, it, the date came to turn it in, and I hadn't finished watching it, and I just turned it in. That's another possibility as well, very strong possibility, because I I didn't have access to you know Amazon Prime back in those days. Is it possible so you case, saw a chopped up version of it too? Because there, there were a lot of the movies that we got back then too were like sometimes they would just take chunks out if they thought Americans wouldn't understand it, or they or the or they'd be edited differently. They'd edit them down and. Sure, um, I mean I have no idea, but. In the end, yeah, this is the first time I have actually seen the whole thing. And my impression of the movie was, I guess, better. Because previously, I, I remember watching it and, and I remember liking it. I remember mm -hmm. the Dallas Priest guy. I remember the story between the, the main character. And even just his, that opening scene where he's kind of stumbling around with the little, you know, square scholar type backpack on and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, that has stuck in my mind really strongly. Well, since. that's iconic now. That's iconic. Yeah. That that character. Yeah, and the uh, the the translation that I made my name on, or that started my career, or whatever you want to call it, "I Shall Sell the Heavens." The main character of that story is a scholar. So mm -hmm. when it, when I started translating "I Shall Sell the Heavens," "I Shall Sell the Heavens," I kept thinking back to Chinese ghost story, those scenes. So that's my take. I really liked it, and I think there's a t a ton to unpack in terms of the content so of the movie as it relates to the stuff we talk about. So let's start with that ending because that's the first time you've seen it, and it sounds like it improved your impression of the movie. My, for me, I, I'm I'm curious if you feel the same way. For me, I've always felt that that's the thing that really, for like I love the movie all the way through, but that's what really carries it up into a higher level of this is like a solid five or this is a solid ten, whatever your max rank is. That's what puts it up there is, and I think the reason is because, and I want to address this in more detail later, but one of the main themes of the movie is this sort of blurring of the boundaries between the human realm and the ghostly realm and all these various realms really. And like also in terms of genre, like it's a blurring of comedy, horror action. It's, it's a, it, it even blurs. I feel it blurs like the line between being a viewer and being in the movie because the, the way that it handles the music, you know, they talk about diagenic music. That's like uh the music the characters are hearing versus the music the audience is hearing. And I feel like there's music in it that crosses the boundary from being diegetic to being the score, if that makes sense. Like, and, and it kind of, 
it, it, I don't know, it just creates this sense that of, of the boundary being more flexible to me. And that ending is all about suddenly the permeability of the human realm and the, and the, um, and hell or whatever the, that other underworld is supposed to be that, that, that's sort of where all of that comes together. And it comes together in a very dreamlike way at that inn, where slowly you sort of realize that they're, they're in this inn that is part of the evil that is chasing them. And, uh, and there are hints to that, that sort of make you uneasy along the way. And it's just very well done. So I, I don't know if that's why, if you feel the same way, but uh, for me, that was always my reaction to that last portion of it. It could very well be. And yeah, I, I agree totally with what you're saying. And I think, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think that, um, well, I don't want to get to change the subject too quickly, but I want to mention also that I watched the whole thing in Cantonese. And then I was curious about some things because being a, you know, a, a language learner, I'm pretty well advanced in my Chinese and I can understand most things fairly well. And so well, watching it in Cantonese, though, it was kind of frustrating because I couldn't understand mm -hmm. what they were saying. And I was curious about how accurate the subtitles were. So I then went back and I didn't watch the whole thing in Mandarin. I, I didn't have time, but I did watch some selected and important scenes in Mandarin. Then I uh, I read the original uh, Pu Songling story that it's based on. So for anyone out there listening mm -hmm. that, that isn't aware, it's, it's loosely based on a story from uh, the famous author Pu Songling. And I read that in Chinese. Now, to, to be clear, the original Chinese version of the story is a very ancient style of Chinese. So I didn't I actually didn't read the original. I read a translation into modern Chinese, basically, you could say. OK, I think the best way to think about it would be like if you went back to read. I don't know, either Shakespeare or yeah. Chaucer or something like that. There like, are books like that. They're, they're like modern English versions yeah. of Hamlet and stuff. That you can um, read. And in, in, I kind of compared the two. There are some lines that are just exactly line for line, same in the old as the new. Mm -hmm. And then in some instances, it kind of clarifies it. So anyway, the point is I read the, the more modern version. Now, I was actually curious about um, how difficult it is to read the old Chinese version. So I asked my wife to read a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, she's native Chinese. She... Um, uh, you know, she's not like a scholar or something, but she was, she is college ed educated and she actually scored at the top of her class in Mandarin uh, in college. So in, in China, they test you on Mandarin, both spoken, written and uh, reading and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so she scored at the top of her class in Mandarin. So it's not like she's, you know, some villager that doesn't know how to read or something. She's definitely educated. And so I asked her to read it. So she sat down and read the first, you know, uh, the first bit of the story and um, was her initial reaction was, oh, yeah, I can read this. And then she kind of shooed me away. And I, I took our baby. She's one year old, one year old now. And let my wife read for a little bit. And she basically her take was she could she could easily understand the story as long as she took her time reading very slowly to catch every single last character and word okay so i think it's a little bit beyond my ability to read at least not like just sit down and read it uh, mm. the version i read i could basically just sit down and read it and not have to look up every single archaic word okay so going on with my story i also read the uh, john minford john uh, Min john minford translation into english as well and so i got all of those different versions under my belt at this point and so I'll, it, I couldn't help but compare 
all the different ones okay. and the similarities and the differences. And I know you read it in English. My take was the movie is at most just barely inspired or it's like inspired by the original story in terms of the names and like the very, very, very general concept. But beyond that, there's very little similarities. Well, I think it's like, um, I mean, usually the Pusong Ling stories when they're made into movies, they, they take a lot of liberties often because they're just so short, but also because they have to make a movie out of the thing. Um, I mean, I feel like if you watch the movie and then you read the story, you can see where everything came from. Do you know what I mean? Like you can see, ah, like the core concept is there, right? And yeah. the core set of relationships is kind of there, but they, they, ch and again, I'm going through English translation here, so I might not have a full illumination to all of the details, but like, I think one change, if I understood the story correctly, is uh, it doesn't seem like the demon is a tree demon in the translations that I read. There is a, there is a poplar tree that's significant. So I see how the tr I see how if there wasn't a tree demon, how they got one. They just kind of yeah, yeah. fold that together with the demon yeah. that's in. But um, and, and also the swordsman role his his role is a little different. You can see where they go, but you can sort of see how they would take that and say, well, we're yeah. going to turn this into a character and. And so it, that's sort of what's interesting about the movie, because if uh, it, it's it's in the expansion that they succeeded with the material, I guess. So, yeah, um, I mean, I, I totally agree. It's I, I don't think it's any diss to point out that they're different. I mean, if you made a movie that was exactly like the story, it would probably be pretty boring. Um, although that said, there are some, I think, some very significant differences, such as he's married. Yeah. Um, the whole thing about, you know, daytime and nighttime doesn't really exist in the movie. She basically eventually just follows him home and then lives with him as yeah. a ghost and then slowly turns into a human and then his wife dies and she, sorry, I'm getting into spoilers here, but That's she okay. ends up marrying him and and then they, it, it, I liked that they ended up living happily ever after. That's actually probably the biggest difference, I think, between the movie and the book. But I mean, yeah. the, the movie wouldn't have had the impact that it did if they if they stuck so closely to the original. I like those elements of the story because it, it's very, it's almost, it's like a very domestic story. Like, it, like there's there there is all this drama around the ghost and all this, and there is the thing with the magic bag. But ultimately, it's about this ghost that follows him home and he becomes a servant, and then he marries her, and then they have kids and all this stuff. And it, I think in the in the format of the Pusongling stories that work, but I think and maybe there's a way to do it in a movie where it would work too. But I feel like in a movie I can see why they went the other direction. But I I do like this the one sort of thing I don't. It's not bad about the movie, but it's the thing that sort of as a viewer it makes me long for a different ending. Is there isn't the happy? I mean, there's a happy ending, but it's not as happy as the book yeah. ending. You know. <laughs> And, and yeah, but I, I again, I think the impact is is significantly well. It's more impactful, sort of, in the in the movie, in the in the in the short story version. It's like I, I like this, and I, I'm a sucker for happy endings. I mean, I like a good tragedy as well now and then, but I ultimately prefer to have happy endings. It's that's one of the reasons why I really hate it, and I, I, this happens all the time in movies. And you know, it is what it is. But I really hate it in movies where 
you get the happy ending and then at the beginning of the sequel like they take away the, happy, take ending, away like the happy ending born. it's like the, he gets the girl in the end and she the, dies in the beginning yeah. of the next movie like happens all the time well, I, I don't like that so though. that's i like i like sad endings but i agree with you 100 percent on that because that just totally takes away what you got from the first movie it's it's a real <laughs> and, and it's so disrespectful to the character that they just dispatch in the first two seconds you know it's yeah there, there's a there's a there's a lot with that that i don't like um but yeah, the, the movie is a lot more, it's kind of one of these films where they want you to feel every emotion over the course of the evening. So they want you to laugh. They want you to be on your edge of, edge of your seat. They want you to cry. They want you to have all these things. And it, 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 it does a surprisingly good job of weaving through all of those different things. Um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the movies from this period in Hong Kong do that. But this is one of the ones that really stands out. Where it's like, wow, I was just laughing at the courtroom scene, and now suddenly I'm whisked away to this battle, and then this, and then, and it's one thing after another. And the, I, I think the the scene that encapsulates it the most for me is the bath scene. For some reason, that's like the scene where you kind of get. I feel like it's at the center of the movie, so you get it's it's where you see the pivoting the most. But also in that scene, there's a, a whole lot of story development as everything is sort of. You know, as all these little yeah. comedy things are unfolding, you know. And I think for the most part, this movie pulls it off really well in terms of the pacing and balancing that. Because there's plenty of other movies where they try to put in some funny stuff and then some action and then some drama and some romance. And it doesn't quite pull off and it, they don't quite pull it off and it doesn't feel like the same movie yeah. in between the different parts. This one pretty much pretty much does. And I think that's one of the strongest elements of it. Well, I think it's the way that they stylize everything, like like the courtroom scene, which is like as wacky as hell. Like you know, the, you have this like like it looks like a it looks like a sketch from from it looks like something out of a sketch show. Do you know what I mean? It's like that kind of comedy. Um, but there's this there's this looming eeriness that they manage to continue to keep bringing up in that scene that t that like ties it to the rest of the movie. Do you know what I mean? And and it allows the transition from that scene to the next one to kind of work. But um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it. it I, I really like how they I like how they go from beat to beat like that. And I like how they just keep blurring the boundaries between things throughout the movie. It just seems like this. It feels very cohesive as a result, um, which is kind of, you know, it's ironic considering that, you know, what what I'm talking about is that it's all over the map, you know. So, um, yeah, but uh, and also another thing I like about this movie is the music. I really like the way that the music is used throughout the movie. Like they, they use that opening theme song kind of in like the daylight hours, mostly it seems to kind of denote like there's like a sort of, there's like a little bit more buoyancy to it. And then they use that like ethereal ghostly music during the romantic stuff. And then they use that like long droning music when you're supposed to be afraid of something. Do you know what I mean? And it's sort of like, it's, it's simple, but it really kind of, it, 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 it's effective. It, it, uh, and um, I think my o my only complaint about the film, and it's not really a complaint because it's sort of like growing up from that period. It's just something you get used to. But the one area that kind of falls short is some of the practical effects around those corpses that are in the house. Um, right. Yeah. But they have a charm of their own, so it works. But like it definitely, you know, if, if it's a, something I w would want to prepare a modern viewer for because the rest yeah. of the movie looks so good. And that's the section where it's like you can sort of see the strings of the yeah you know it's what like I mean? really like not 
not particularly bad stop motion, but not really good stop motion yeah. either. Yeah. And you know what? Incidentally, okay, as I've as is the case with virtually every one of these podcasts, for the most part, I watched this movie in chunks because um, I got kids and I'm busy, so I watched it 15, 20 minutes here and there. What happened to those skeletons? Did they like? I remember oh, they they got oh, they killed got, by, the they got by the sunlight. Yeah, the, yeah, they got. That's that's another scene where it, it kind of looks like Gremlins, like when 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 he gets melted by the sunlight. It's like yeah. the same type of scene. Um, he, I think he drops his ink stone into the uh, yeah into the basement, and he goes there, and then they're trying right. to get him, and he it's like a slapsticky thing where he accidentally knocks down the panel, and the sunlight kills them. Um, which yeah, you know, but uh. Yeah, so I don't know. Um and and then there's also the uh the other swordsman who dies early in the movie too, which is a uh, uh you know, obviously I don't know if you would call him an addition or if it's just that they simply took the first swordsman in the original story and split him into two characters. Right. But but this one is like, you know, much more ferocious and merciless right. and uh you know, he's righteous but maybe a little bit too righteous and hot tempered. Um but I like how I like the, the way I connect him to the story is the magic bag in the story gets its power because that's where the swordsman put all the heads of the people that he cut off. And we see that character cutting off people's heads at the start of the movie. So I feel like there's like a, I don't know, there's some kind of connection there between the two things. But, oh, I think we might have lost Jeremy here. Um, uh, you're kind of breaking up for oh, me there. I was just saying, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear it. You were okay. talking about the bag getting its power from the yeah, the heads in it and I was just saying the scene where that other swordsman is cutting off people's heads in the start of the movie kind of connects it nicely to that to to that for me. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like yeah. oh, maybe that's where they got that idea. Is that's like the backstory that they that they right. you know um, <laughs> that actually meshes quite well with our sort of like killing aura darkness mechanic. Not exactly, but it falls in line with that, and that that mechanic comes a lot from the stuff I've translated because I think it's a concept that I've seen a lot in the stuff I've translated which is you know killing people has ramifications especially as it as the number of people you kill uh increases it has increasing ramifications well I guess in a way you could say like for our purposes the killing or a darkness is almost like your bad karma, right? Like that's kind of, yeah. it's, it's, it, it can sort of serve that function. So we might be able to play on that. Like if there's a, if there's a monster that specifically goes after bad people, for example, that might be a lever that we could pull. And like you were saying, like the, the idea of this, um, you know, just the fact that this guy was killing these people in this way, that it would have this, it would imbue the item that he's putting the heads into with, with power over time. Yeah. Is, is an interesting way to make magic items. So what I was thinking is we, I th there are a couple different things I wanted to bring up and I'm thinking mm. we, sh we can split the rest of the conversation depending on how much time we have into a couple different areas. And maybe we can save the game related stuff to the last because I have a couple things to bring okay. up about that. But while we're still talking about purely the movie and the story, I wanted to bring up some, some language stuff. And I'm not going to bore everybody with all of my you know, language pontification um but like i said i watched it in cantonese and, and mandarin and read it in chinese and english so i did notice a lot of different things and if i was gonna say if i was gonna pick one thing that i didn't like i'll put that in quotations didn't like 
it would definitely be the subtitles. And I'm not saying that I didn't like the subtitles. Um, mm. Now, we were talking about this before we hit the record button. And I guess there's at least two different versions. And yeah. there's one that you like better than the other. And I think the one I got, which is the one on Amazon Prime, is the one that you say is inferior. Yeah, so there's a um, there's there's a bunch of different versions of this movie. Obviously, it's been around for a while, and so like you know, I I think I have like three or four versions of this movie. But there's a DVD version that has subtitles that I really like, and there's the Blu-ray version, which I believe we watched on Amazon. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think that's the Blu-ray t- subtitles. And the thing I immediately noticed the first time I watched the Blu-ray was I wasn't laughing as much during the, the comedy scenes. And it was because of the subtitles. They just weren't as punchy. And so, like, the big scene where you notice that is a scene where he's got the goop on his face. And he's kind of saying, like, ah, you know, in the human world, I act like a ghost. In the ghost world, I act like a human. And he's got this identity crisis. And they really amp up the humor of that in the in the DVD thing and i think it i think the big punchline is like you know this is no time for having an identity crisis or something like that <laughs> it, it just really works i don't know if it's accurate but it, i yeah. was busting out laughing when i when i when i, yeah. when I first saw it and in this one it's just it's still funny because wuma's kind of being ridiculous but the language around it isn't adding as much to the humor i find sure and, and so I that, think humor is is one area. I was just talking about this on a pod, another podcast recently with a translator, and I think a lot of translators will agree that if you're trying to make the audience laugh, you need to veer away from the literal translation. And that's especially true with Chinese, where there's a lot of wordplay mm-hmm. and things like that. Like you could get you can get so bogged down in trying to accurately convey what's happening in Chinese that it just is not funny in English. Okay. Um, so I'd be curious to check out that other version. To see what you're talking about for me like i mentioned before i don't understand cantonese so it's even doubly hard for me because sometimes i'll be watching something uh in mandarin and english and then I'll, I'll i'll be able to spot the differences or i'll hear the humor just directly and laugh and and i couldn't do that here one interesting thing i noticed was that the mandarin version i watched uh, it was on youtube um and it has Chinese subtitles, but the Chinese subtitles don't match. And I didn't 100% check, but I'm fairly certain that the Chinese subtitles are for the Cantonese version, not the Mandarin version. Okay. I, I, I did a spot check a couple of places. I didn't look deeply into it. Um, I didn't have the time, but I'm I'm fairly certain that those those Chinese subtitles work for the Cantonese in Mandarin. They didn't update the subtitles. Um, so in Mandarin, like if you're not looking very closely, uh, if you speak Mandarin and you're not looking very closely, you might not even notice that they're not actually speaking Mandarin. I've noticed this with the dubbed versions of a lot of things, uh, a lot of the movies. They do a really good job of matching the language to the uh, to the, the movements and their their facial expressions and their gestures and stuff. Of course, it's made easy by the fact it's made easy in that for the most part they are speaking the same Chinese characters just different pronunciation of those characters that's not a blanket rule in every case but apparently they did change quite a bit in the mandarin because i was watching it and like none of the subtitles not i shouldn't say none but many of them are just different and so that said i didn't notice any major changes like it wasn't as though you know like plot points were different because of changes in mandarin it just that they changed to make it fit presumably the acting of the actors uh, so I thought that was a pretty interesting thing. And um, then another thing I wanted to get into even more deeply, and I won't, let's say a little bit deep, not too too deep, is the how they chose to translate a lot of the um, Chinese terms. And me and you have gone 
over this in various forms a lot over the years and also specifically as it relates to the um, expansion to righteous blood ruthless yeah. blades that we're planning uh, and one thing that frustrates me is the complete lack of consistency in how a lot of these terms are translated, which leads to people who don't speak Chinese basically not really able, not being able to have any sort of standard to understand what they're talking about. Now, obviously, with the movies, you're watching it happen on the screen, so you you get it. And and yeah. whether they translate it as tree spirit or tree demon or tree whatever, you get the point. But in Chinese, there is a lot of there. There is a, a fair degree of consistency into what is a ghost or what is a demon, depending on how you want to translate it. So, for and I'll give you an example. Um, for the English translation of the short story, uh, I think she refers to. I'm talking about the girl who's a ghost. She refers to the creature that is controlling her. The translator, John Minford, chose to translate it as an evil spirit. Um, in Chinese, it's not spirit. And this is one thing that really, it just drives me crazy. And I, it especially drives me crazy that somebody that's as well-regarded as John Minford doesn't seem to have any consistency in his own translation. He just picks what he thinks sounds cool based on, on the circumstances. But basically, uh, in the Chinese novel, sorry, Chinese short story, it's a demon or yao um, that is the problem for her. That's what she's dealing with. And in the movie, it's the same. In the movie, the tree is a yao, which is a demon, and the creature that she is being uh, sent off to marry, which in the version I translated it, they called him like Lord of the Black Mountain or something. I forget what it was. Uh, yeah, Lord of the Black Hill or Lord of the Black Mountain, something, something like that. that. He's also described as being yao, which is a demon. And the girl is specifically called a ghost, the character Gwei for uh, ghost. Um, and so anyway, I we've gone back and forth about this a lot, but it really does frustrate me that the average English speaker has no way to really un really know well, what is being let's go Let's go into that one. Because so what I want to know is, are they both the same type of demon? Like when you say Yao, is that like spirited beast? Is that like that type of demon, like some kind of, like like is it like it says in the movie she's like a tree that's cultivated over a thousand years is that yeah, what and basically and then what yeah. and then the lord of, of black mountain what what kind of demon is he supposed to be is that clear it doesn't, or is that... doesn't really say okay um, i'd have to go back and double check the uh chinese subtitles because i i was doing some of this really late at night when i you know, both kids had finally fallen asleep and i was like bleary eyed but i was like i gotta i gotta mm. check the chinese on this so some of it is kind of blurring a little bit. But yes, yeah, he was described as being Yao as well, which I was a little bit um, sort of confused by because they specifically say they're going to Difu, which is not the common, the most common word for hell. The most common word for hell is Di Yu. Yeah. But that's like the generic word for hell in Chinese. But also there's like a million <laughs> words for hell in Chinese. For instance, in the uh, short story in Chinese, she's constantly saying that she, she's con constantly referring to the um, the uh, the nine. Oh man, the the word is skipping me now. Uh, the nine springs that are under the ground, which is a, one of the terms for uh, the underworld or hell or something like that. So anyway, the, in the movie they say uh, Di Fu, which is the underground uh, mansion or palace or something like that. 
and it's basically the underworld or hell. So they now definitely is that, going... is that different from DU, or is it just a, it's a synonym, but it's a different word? Uh, from what I've experienced, and I don't want to make blanket statements claiming to be a top expert in this subject or whatever. From what I've seen, it's just a synonym. Okay. And there are a lot of different synonyms. Um, I've seen authors use the different terms like the yellow springs or whatever, uh, just completely synonymously with each other. Uh, so I was a little con sort of confused by that, but not really uh, that this guy who's described as being a yaw or a demon is residing in hell. Like, why is that? I think some of it is that the terms get thrown around a lot, whether you're talking about modern novels or whether you're talking about the ancient stuff. I feel like there's a lot, the authors, the writers, from what I've seen, don't seem to adhere to a, as much of a rigid set of uh, like, you know, like a canon, or if you might want to put it that way. For instance, in the short story version, there is mention when, when they are in the early part of the story, when they're uh, the two uh, characters, I think it is, are kind of like, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in this temple that they're staying at. They frequently use the word that combines Yao, which is I usually translate it as demon, and then Moa, which I usually translate as devil, but doesn't always have to be. They put them together into one word, which is Yao Moa. So how, what exactly they're referring to in that is never really defined in the story. Is it that they mean demons and devils? Is it that they just mean monsters? It could be that they're just talking about monsters, except okay. there's another word which is commonly used to mean monster, which is Yao Guai. That said, Yao Guai is also frequently lumped in with simply Yao. Um, now, I did a YouTube video on this that I, well, I was, I was working on a collaboration video with another YouTuber about this subject, and I never managed to release the video because it, I recorded it like two weeks before my daughter was born, and then after that, my whole life like fell apart. Not like, I just mean like my wife couldn't help me edit videos, mm -hmm. and we were all sleep deprived and stuff, so I never managed to get that video out. But I did a lot of research into the whole Yao and demon thing. And the conclusion is basically that for the most part, the, uh, demons or Yao are kind of like you said, if you want to use the term spirited, um, not necessarily creatures. They could even be like a mountain or yeah, a yeah. rock or something where over the years of their cultivation, however they go about practicing it, if it's a mountain, presumably the energy of the earth passing through it or something eventually lead to it developing some sort of internal core or something that right that causes it to rise to a higher level of consciousness. Uh, however, they have not yet reached and perhaps cannot reach the level of becoming an immortal or a sien. Mm -hmm. So the ultimate goal, whatever it is, if you're a human or if you're a demon um, or yao, is to eventually reach the level of becoming an immortal. But for those creatures, those things, creatures and items and objects that have not uh, successfully become an immortal, they are demons or yell, mm. and they're usually animalistic and chaotic. And um, yeah, that's that's what I my research and, indicated. And that's what I've but, also seen in the stuff that I've translated a lot, for example, and I shall sell the heavens. One of the big plot points that goes through the whole series is that there's a lake uh, that is essentially a demon and it manifests as a little girl but it's a lake and this yeah. lake's dream is to eventually become a sea. And the main character says, I will help you to become a sea one day. And so that's a lake that became a demon and eventually wants to become a sea. So and it, and it's, and it's one, of the, it's one of the most intriguing monsters that I, I encounter in these kind of movies and these kind of stories. 
And I think part of it is because there's so much, so much you can do with it. Like there, you'll read stories where like, like you said, there's like a rock that's spirited. And sometimes it got, it has huge personality and like all kinds of features. And sometimes it's like, it's spirited almost more like Herbie is like, I guess that's the closest you can compare it to in American and English movies is like Herbie or movie, you know, like, or, or Christine. You mean Herbie the love bug? Or yeah. Her, Herbie, the... Herbie, the love bug or, or Christine, the, uh, you know, the, the evil version of Herbie, right? Like, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and what's interesting to me is, is that, a, a lot of the different movies and stuff, they kind of span the spectrum with that where some of them are like Herbie and some of them are like Christine. Do you know what I mean? It's not always like, like generally it seems like they're supposed to be bad, but like in this movie, like you have the ghost played by Joey Wong, who's a good ghost. She's doing evil, but it's against her will. Right. And so, you know, and, and that could have just as easily have been shifted onto the demonic tree instead of the ghost. They could have had the demonic tree be the sympathetic creature that's trying to become more like a human or something um you know sort of like a white snake type type figure um so yeah so i don't know but but i i i, I mean we've kind of been going on this for for a long time but i do think that th that is when i first saw this movie i have to admit i had no idea what was going on half the time do you know what I mean? like on like, the, like your very first encounter with this movie and you know nothing about you know chinese mythology nothing about chinese ghosts you know nothing about you know tree demons aren't even like a concept that you've encountered you know like you're just like what is that you, you, you have no idea it just is it yeah. just all looks like it's off the wall but um but it's also and oh go ahead i was just gonna say to compound that is the fact that um especially in the movies which we also talked about this before hitting the record button but especially in the movies the directors are free to and and they take advantage of their ability to do whatever they want to make it look cool and to make the story work. Right. So it's it's not, you know, you I don't know for sure if the the tree demon as portrayed in the movie is also described in Pusong Wing or maybe cl the classic of Mountain and Seas or whatever. I really have no idea. Or maybe he just made it up. I mean, it's hard to say. That complicates it as well because, the you know, the movie makers are trying to make a cool story and use cool special effects that, you know, they think are going to, wow the audience and not necessarily you know they're not setting out to be like let's make an let's make a extremely accurate portrayal of well, you know chinese mythology i think even in the stories it varies because like you you had mentioned that one of the things that's different in the movie is they're 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 killed by sunlight and in the story that's not mentioned and i if i i i feel like that's a rule that in some of the pu songling stories makes an appearance that they yeah. like the daylight affects them in some way but in some of them it doesn't and it seems like it's very much dependent on the individual story. Like in this story, these are kind of like the rules that the ghosts abide by. And it's a little bit different in the next story, which really isn't that different from like, if you're reading like Grimm's fairy tales or something like the, yeah. the, the rules are going to vary from account to account. Right. So I think, uh, I, I think one of the things that can happen when you're trying to sort of emulate this stuff is you can get caught up in there can't be deviation from the rules established by this one source. But when the sources themselves have all these different rules, you, you know, you kind of, you, you need to be able to emulate that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, It'd be like I, the, the example that jumps to mind, because this is so, so recent is I feel like it would be like somebody in, you know, let's see, this movie came out in, in the eighties, right? Yeah. So 87, 87, 87, 97. We're like 25 years removed. It would be like if in 25 years somebody came along and was like, you know, I, I'm I have make... some bad news for you. 
It's way more than 25 years. Um, oh, was it 35? <laughs> what year is it right Wait, now? Wait, it's, anyways? let me see, 97, uh, 2007, 2017, right? Is that, yeah. Yeah. We're getting... Okay. 40, let's just say 40 years. <laughs> let's, let's say in 40 years, somebody came along and was like, I'm going to make a Fast and the Furious role-playing game, and we're going to be completely accurate to the Fast and the Furious <laughs> franchise. Well, sorry to say, but you're going to have trouble doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So same concept where we're working on this supernatural stuff, um, and we're trying to maintain as much accuracy to uh, you know Chinese mythology and whatnot as we can. But as you mentioned, even in the stories themselves by the authors, there's a variety of ways that different things are portrayed speaking of which you know maybe we can move more into the game side as well i think that's something that's good to consider is i mean we have a lot of decisions to make you know like are we going to have our ghosts be like the ghosts from the movie or are we going to have them be like the ghosts from the story we have quite a few decisions to make okay so here's my general thinking on number one i think you always have to have the room to be to add your own flair and stamp and be creative with it or it's kind of dull do you know what i mean but like I feel like Chinese ghost story is such an important movie that that's like the baseline. You, that doesn't have to be the standard for all ghosts and all tree demons, but you have to be able to make an adventure based on a Chinese ghost story and have it run the way a Chinese, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's sort of how I think about these things. Like yeah, we mean, could make think, 18 other ghosts and that's fine, you know, but the. Yeah. I, I mean, I think virtually everybody who is even remotely into these movies and the, the, this genre has definitely heard of it. You know, they might not have heard of some of the other more obscure ones. I mean, you, you and I made a, or primarily you, cause this is more your area of expertise made a list of the supernatural movies that we are going to try to, you know, take inspiration from and do podcasts about. And that's a really long list. Many of which yeah. I think a lot of people probably have never even heard of, but this one they've definitely heard of. And I think one of the movies on that list, as far as I know, like the I've only been able to see it in Mandarin with no English subtitles. Um, <laughs> wow! The, the like the the nineteen sixties version of Painted Skin. I watched it because I wanted I, it's a clap, but like I have no idea what they're saying. Um, okay. But for the That'll visuals awesome. alone, it was worth it. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, um, I'm sorry. Go on. I interrupted you. No, I just was saying that that sounds interesting, and I look forward to seeing that and. Um, going along with it with the game stuff, just I mean, even if you even if you just went with, with Chinese ghost story, you could probably I mean, there's a wealth of, of stuff that you could uh, tap into in terms of inspiration. That's not to mention all the other movies that that we have. So I think we and of course, the, the written stuff as well. So yeah, I think the challenge for us in in the on the game side is going to be keeping it simple and not going overboard in terms of trying to draw inspiration from too many things, at least in, as far as what directly relates to game mechanics and creatures and items well, and whatnot. One thing that can really be beneficial is to have a general rule that's clearly stated to people, which is there's vi variety is sort of more the norm with these things. It's sort of like how Ravenloft approached handling monsters where it's like, yeah, here's an entry for a vampire, but every individual vampire can be different. And so don't expect that every vampire is going to be like this one. You know, not all vampires will have be affected by garlic, for example. And some might not be affected by a stake through the heart. For certain vampires, maybe you have to stab them with like a golden spear or something. You know, like, who knows? It's all, it might be related to their backstory or whatever. But I think taking that kind of approach is, is better because then it frees the GM up to 
to be flexible and accommodate you know like they 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 like like in Pusong Ling like fox spirits and ghosts are like the two big things that you keep encountering female fox spirits and female ghosts there are some male ghosts and male fox spirits but it's mainly the female and there are so many different varieties that uh you, you almost end up with, you could end up with like a catalog of like 50 different types of fox spirits just from reading the stories. Um, so, I, you know, I think, I think, I think ultimately what it is, is what's, what's important is the story, not the, you know, yeah. not like there's a list of rules that you have to follow every single time. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing this movie really, I think, perfectly encapsulates is an issue that we just were talking about in the last meeting we had about, about this, you know, new content and you don't necessarily have to get into the mechanical stuff per se but one issue that we identified is the question of whether or not uh, our game is intended for players to be um, ordinary people who get sucked into a supernatural and or horror or magical situation or does it is it supposed to be that they're you know expert demon hunters that get called in to, you know, clear out the castle of ghosts or whatever it is. And I think the the short answer to the question is both, essentially. And I think this movie does it is is and there's many other movies, but this yeah. one does the perfect, you know, balancing act where it shows some guy who's kind of just an ordinary guy that gets pulled into the magical situation and then he gets paired up with some top expert guy who knows everything and is but at the same time is still a little bit outclassed and a little bit unsure of everything that's going on yeah no that's it's one of the one of the things that i like about about this movie it's also something like when i did strange tales of song ling that's something i was thinking about a lot is you need to be able to have the scholar and you need to be able to have the swordsman and so i i i i do think that uh people should be free to make characters that will go in either direction i think as long as i mean and that'll be possible because if you make a regular righteous blood character uh, they might not be experts at killing ghosts. You know what I mean? But if you make, if you, if you use a lot of the signature abilities and rules that we're going to be adding to the expansion, then your character will be, uh, especially over time. Like, like the swordsman in this is probably not a level one character. He's probably like at least level five, maybe higher. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But like, you could make a character like that. I think, I think that's something that we want to have is that you can make a guy like this. Um, and, and I, and again, I think this movie is like a baseline that we need to, to check ourselves against periodically um sure but, and what do you think about the tree demon itself in terms of if you were going to assign a level to that because i was thinking about that as i was watching the scene and i was thinking man so you have the girl who is probably i mean she like he points out that she has chingong and she can kind of do some things so if you were going to assign a level i would say maybe she's like three or five or something and then the Taoist guy the swordsman probably like you said five or maybe a little bit higher and then uh, uh, Leslie Chung's character probably one or maybe even a level. Zero, I would say one. Does. I'd say he's level yeah. one. Yeah, I'd level say one. So, but man, that that tree demon is like does a lot of stuff, and and yet, so is it a case of like I, I you know, I, I've thought about this issue in a lot of movies because you know, obviously, movies are not sitting around with dice calculating yeah. everything. But you know, if it was a a, a statted creature did they win because of blind chance of circumstance, you know, because everything happened right. And in real life, if you had a stat, a, a, a creature with stats that was reflective of the way that she even worked in the movie, would it be possible for a level one, a level three and a level five character to actually defeat something? Or was it just complete random 
luck. Well, I think it was the movie, and so there's that. And in the game, <laughs> I th- so number one, I don't think the monsters will necessarily have like levels. So it's a little, it's a little bit right. Like right, you could, yeah. but like if we're just gonna give a level just for the purpose of saying what was the power of the, I would say as she's like what a one thousand year old cultivated tree demon, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's assume that the cap of our game is exceeded if we have if we bring gods and stuff. Like if I bring a god into the game, nine doesn't matter. That's eighteen. Do you know what I mean? But a tree demon would be at least nine. I would think. The, yeah, the, yeah. And I would say Swordsman Yan, he might be... So it's weird because I, I said five at first, but I think in order for to reflect what's going on in the movie, he has to be the same level or a level below the tree demon. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's maybe two levels below at most because um, he is getting help and stuff. But like, he was definitely able of dueling with this tree demon on his own to some degree. So... Yeah, he 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 knew what was going on, and he you know he like was ready uh, ready and willing and able to just take it on, you know, head to head. Yeah. And then kind of circumstances led to him getting you know caught by surprise this situation, and maybe you know things didn't go as expecting the other situation. Uh, but he wasn't. It wasn't as though he was like a level nine character facing up a level thirty character or something. But what that might also mean is that we might want to consider factoring in killing or a darkness there. Cause he does have all these lines about how good cannot be defeated by evil. You know, the evil, you know, the good will win. And it seems to be part of what, like, cause he's, he's sort of early on in the movie, he's compared to the other swordsman. Who's not as good of a guy. The other swordsman gets seduced by the ghost. Like, like right away, the other swordsman, we see him cutting off people's heads. He's just like a brutal, brutal guy. And, and the Wu Ma character is much more measured and protective of things. And the reason he's retreated from the world is because he doesn't like the corruption in it. So presumably he's an, he's a pretty upstanding guy. I think, I think it might be wise to have some monsters where characters with a higher killing aura darkness would have a harder time fighting them than characters with lower killing aura darkness. You know what I mean? Um, that might be interesting uh but i'm writing this i'm writing this down as a note really quickly okay yeah i think i think that would be pretty cool because that was something i did pick up on this on this viewing but i was like oh i think his um i i think i think how good of a person he was kind of mattered here um and 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 also he's like a stubborn prick a little bit yeah he's kind of got like <laughs> that he's got this he's he's an interesting character he's he's one of my favorite characters from these movies and he's probably the best character wuma's ever played like he just is amazing I don't even know how to describe the character. This is a character who gets away with doing a rap in the middle of the movie, and it doesn't feel like an intrusion on anything. It actually feels like it belongs in the film, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, I just think it was funny how he the whole thing relating to the sutra was was really hilarious. How he basically gave it to him, and he said. I can't read this. And he's like, well, just say the first line over yeah. and over again. And then later on, they're both saying the first line over and over again yeah. to protect themselves. Yeah. So does that mean he didn't know how to read it himself? I think that... that was what the implication yeah. was. Well, and also he was a Taoist and it was a Buddhist sutra, right? And it was in like um, Sanskrit or something. Was it? I forget. Yeah. And, or Bali. Well, I think, or... Like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm kind of starting to mix together the, I forget which is coming from the story, the short story and which is from the movie. But I think, he was said to be some sort of like city magistrate or government official or something, right? Who then gave up his mundane, you know, he got too tired of, of corruption or something like that. And then yeah. decided to become a Taoist. So 
I think there's a, it doesn't really explicitly state this, but I would think there's a little bit of a difference between somebody who had a full life as a government official, then decided to go be a Buddhist, as opposed to like somebody who was raised as a Buddhist and trained yeah. as a demon hunter and all. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't obviously say that in the movie, but in my mind, it would be a little bit different. No, no, I, I think I think that's true. But also, like you know, he said he describes himself as a Taoist, but but the scripture is Buddhist. So even yeah. if he was edu- educated in in Taoist stuff, I figure maybe he doesn't know you know Bali canon stuff. You know, like, um, but <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I, I'm not familiar enough with the diamond suit. That, that's what they translated it as the diamond suit. They translated right? it as diamond suit, but it's actually not that. It's um, I'd have to pull it up. It's uh, oh, actually, I have it in my phone here, in the. Uh, Minford translation, I believe. I think he he translated it directly and correctly. It's uh, I have it right here in my phone, but it's not pulling up. In any case, it's it it's something different in okay. in Chinese. I, f- I forget what it was. Oh, here it is. It's the Surangama Sutra, a tantric work by Paramiti in 705. Which incidentally, I'm pretty sure they they translated uh, the. I think they translated it as Paramita. In, in the uh, the t- subtitles we were watching, do you remember they were saying something Paramita? Yeah, I do remember that. I do remember. But Paramita is different. I, I was actually I was gonna comment on this because I thought it was so cool um, that Paramita came up, but I' not sure if it's the same thing. The reason I bring this up is because um, uh, Paramita is something from it, it, in Chinese it's Bian, which means the other shore. It's a Buddhist concept, but it gets brought up in fantasy novels all the time. And the ones that I uh, translate for anybody out there that's listening uh, in I Shall Sow the Heavens, there's something called the Resurrection Lily. Well, the Resurrection Lily is really a Paramita flower. I didn't want to translate it Paramita directly when I was doing I Shall Sow the Heavens, so I did it more conceptually based on how the flower was described. Resurrection Lily is actually probably a pretty bad translation now that I think about it. But in any case... Paramita comes up in that novel. It's come up in all of the novels that I've translated. It's also come up. In, it also is mentioned in the short story version of uh, uh, the Chinese ghost story. Mm-hmm. She says um, something along the lines. Oh, what she says is, and I don't want to get too much too deep into the translation topic because John Minford is like a very well respected and educated translator. But I sometimes really don't understand why he translates things the way he translates them in the short story she the girl who in in chinese is uh nia xiaotian she says um i have fallen into the sea of suffering and i cannot reach the other shore and the other shore is paramita mm-hmm. so in now again i'm not a buddhist and i don't claim to be a, like some buddhist scholar but it's come up so often in the novels and stories that i've read that i do know that a general concept from buddhism is that you cross the sea of suffering to the other shore and that's reaching perfection and that's bian or paramita and so she's in the story. She says that she says, I have fallen into this sea of suffering and I cannot reach the other shore because she's a ghost and she can't be reincarnated. Uh, the English translation from Minford, she just goes, I have fallen into a deep sea and cannot reach the other but, shore, which kind of is technically accurate, but it kind of. Well, so here, the- here's been my assumption for why that is. I, I'd have to look at the Chinese classics version to see how they translated it because I haven't read that version in about a year. So I don't remember. I can't compare them very easily right now but my sense is anytime it would be required to have a footnote to explain it that's when he often opts for those kinds of yeah americans won't understand it so i'm just gonna do it this yeah. way type of thing 
Um, I think that's actually what really annoys me the most about translations like that is that they translate to the lowest common denominator and they kind of just, they they assume that the readers just won't get it. And so they're, ah, whatever, it doesn't matter. We'll translate it this other way. That philosophy of translation kind of annoys me. But in any case, uh, going back to the point, the point is, and you can find the Surangama Sutra on Amazon. So I'm assuming there's other places that you could probably find it for free online. It says it's by Master Paramiti of Central North India. So I don't really know if the Paramiti, uh, this Master Paramiti, is that the same or related to Paramita or is it different? I don't really know. But um, yeah, how did I get onto that? You were talking words? about, um, you said Paramita came up. And... Oh well, we, we, right, because you asked, you said Diamond Sutra. You asked if it was the Diamond yeah. Sutra, and I was, I was just saying that I had looked a little bit more deeply into it, and I'm not sure what the Diamond Sutra is, but I remember, I'm fairly certain that's a real life and common sutra. Yeah, yeah, that's why I think they chose that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I and and again, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, my wife's Buddhist, but I'm not Buddhist, so I don't know enough about you know the stuff. I've I've read a bit on it, but I don't want to like you know. I don't want to say anything that like will get her mad at me or be wrong. So, um, yeah. uh, but, but my, uh, I, I think that stuff's interesting. Cause that, that like the stuff that you're describing, it gives the story greater meaning. That's why it's significant. Um, did, do you know if the Minford translation, he does have footnotes. Does he talk about that in the footnotes? Do you know, or no, I'd be, I'd be interested to see if he does. I think, I think that, I think I, for me, if the translation is being done because he wants the prose to be beautiful, but then in the footnote, it's explained to me, I'm usually okay with it. Cause then I can see from the footnote what the deal is and have the, I can have both. I can have like the insight, but the flow of the language, but it's when it's when it's just the flow of the language and there's no explanation. And then I'm sort of left as a reader with half of a concept. Do you know what I mean? Then that's when I, I find that I get frustrated. I do like the Minford translation just in terms of how it reads. I've always thought it was very, I don't know, very engaging. Um, yeah, I mean, but... his, like his prose is great. And whether it's this or whether it's um, uh, his other major translation that I read is Deer in the Cauldron, which I read before I knew anything about Chinese. And so I thought it was amazing. Um, he, the On the English side, yeah, it's, it's great. It's <laughs> Uh, looking at it, just skimming through it, I don't see any footnote on it, and he has a. Oh no, they're not. Uh, so the footnotes in this book are tricky because there's not actual like numbers in the text, but if you go to the back of the book, most of the stories have footnotes in them that are unmarked. If that makes sense. Oh. So it's it's so so you talk and I'll actually look this story up in the um. In okay. The, and I'll yeah, see. I mean, I I like I was saying in terms of the English result or the final version of of the translation it reads really really good um i you know i being an unlettered man so to speak i'm not a university lecturer i don't have any certifications in translation and whatnot um so i perhaps i don't have much you know um freedom of speech i guess i don't i don't have the right to be criticizing you know one of the world's most foremost chinese translators i guess Having said that, I'm going to go ahead and criticize him. But basically, like, I, I get the the whole footnote thing. Cause the footnote thing is something that translators talk about all the time. And it's something you can't avoid with Chinese because there's so much mm. that just is culturally incomprehensible to people who aren't familiar with Chinese culture. Well, um, but, if, for instance, in that specific instance where 
what she says is I have fallen, fallen into the sea of suffering and I can't reach Paramita. Um, I think the, the resulting translation, you know, you let me know if there's a footnote clarifying. I'm, I'm, it. Look, um, I'm looking right now. I'm at the footnotes. But it basically, on. the translation, which I'd have to pull it up, uh, I ver I'm fairly confident it said something along the lines of, I have fallen into a deep sea and I cannot reach the other shore. Um, it just, or something along those lines. It The way it's translated makes it come across as though she is simply saying um, some kind of, like, like she's just talking, making a random metaphor, like, but it's, it's a lot more, no, I would, more I than would, that. I would agree with you. I mean, that definitely at least needs a footnote in my opinion. Um, but there, I don't see a footnote of that. Interestingly oh. enough, there is one on the Surangama Sutra. Um, really? yeah. So you might've been pleased cool. by that, but on the, on the, on well, the, I noticed on... that he, he translated it, he translated it correctly in, in that. So that was cool. Like for me personally, if I was, if I was going to be translating something and I wanted it to, to make make it clear to the reader that it wasn't just her making a random metaphor like you know oh mm. the sun is hot so I went under a tree and but in reality it's uh, based on something deeper yeah. I would have considered at least you know well, maybe putting something in capitals like I've fallen into the sea of bitterness sea of bitterness capital and then I have not been able to reach the other shore other shore capitalized you would still get the metaphor but at the same time, would be like, oh, there's probably more to this. That's not just a, a, a swimming metaphor. It's yeah. deeper than that. But it, again, that's just. And it could have also been like a can of worms situation where he was thinking to himself, if I get into this, I'm going to be unwra unwrapping a lot of cosmology that I now have to explain. But w one thing that I, I think, uh, I don't know, with 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 things like I, I think uh I do like to see better explanations of um, of cosmological stuff like that, because uh, when you you know, when you're a reader coming at something from outside the culture, it's just really helpful to get some footholds on, you know, like like why the reincarnation thing is important and how it works and all, you know, and and most of that I was able to intuit from prior knowledge. But like, you know, but like you said, there's that specific reference, which was sort of a meaningful reference that gets glossed over. Um, yeah. So. I mean, the, the, probably talking about this is in itself a can of worms because I could go on and on. Like, just I'll give one more example of things that I don't particularly like about this translation is the fact that he translates the name. And that this is an issue that I've done videos about and translators talk about all the time. And there's different schools of thought about it and whatnot. But it, he, he makes it sound like, so in the English translation, uh, he says, he has her say, my surname is Nia, and some and people have taken to calling me Little Beauty. That is just wrong. It does not. It, it makes it sound like Little Beauty is her nickname. In Chinese, she literally just says, "My surname is Nia, and my name is Xiao Tian." That's oh, just okay. her name. It's her, Little Beauty is, and he does this. He likes to do this. Uh, he did it in in Con, not Condor Heroes. Um, during the Cauldron as well, where he he gave the characters nicknames. Like for example, the main character of during the cauldron is Wei Xiaobao, and he decided to call Xiaobao Trinket because it's a transi translation, but it's like, it's really weird because that's not how names work in Chinese. Yes, names in Chinese do all have, okay, generally speaking, the characters that make up a name do have a meaning, that's true, but when Chinese people talk to each other, they're not thinking about that name, the way that they okay. would think of a Jianghu nickname. Like if I named, like my Jianghu nickname was like, you know, like Hey Yun or something like Black Cloud, and I hmm. told people, "Oh, my nickname is is Black Cloud." Then when you call that person Black Cloud, it's, it's the same as 
in Chinese as in English, where you're kind of in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, this is black okay, top. So like my wife's name is um, Yuan Yuan, and the first Yuan is basically a character uh, that means beautiful, I guess, for all for, to simplify it. And then the other one is the character, the most common character Yuan, which has a lot of different meanings, but you know, it, it's the name of the currency in China. So let's say it means money. Okay. Like when people say Yuan Yuan, they don't think like, oh, there's beautiful money. Like it's, okay. just, it's just not yeah. like that. Not any more than you know. When I say Jet Li, do you think about like a jet airplane? Like, I mean, you you could make a joke about that, and you could like you could say that. But when you're just walking, when I just go up to you like, hey, have you seen the latest Jet Li movie? You're not thinking, have I seen the movie by the guy with that has an airplane in his name like, i don't know so yeah I, I could rant about that for a long no time. i get I mean, that but but i will say about the jet lee thing if i stop and think about it i'm like oh is the jet there because he's so fat you know like true yeah. you know so, um <laughs> but that might be just an example you know but like uh well he he picked that name as a as a you know a stage name but like if you had your friend and they named your their kid Jet, well, I guess then maybe you'd be like, "Hey, did you name him after Jet Li?" And then you're thinking, "Where? Where did Jet Li get his name?" Well, I but guess there's a there's, there's a lot of names in English that are also nouns, you know, like Stone or something like that. Yeah. Where a kid named Stone, you know, Stone Johnson, you're not. Well, thinking... I, I have a nephew named Hunter. Do you know what I mean? And so, like, you know, right, Hunter. Yeah. But then at the same time, like when I do use that name, I do so like it it conjures up the idea of hunting. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So like. I don't That's know thing I, about I, that, not translating the names. I get it. Like when you don't translate the names, you lose the the feeling of it. And there is a feeling of it. And and another downside to not translating the names is that uh, when Chinese readers are reading, they're constantly being met with the characters that make up the name. So they okay. never forget the meaning of it. And in English, when you transliterate the name and then just put a footnote to explain it, most of the readers are going to forget the meaning pretty quickly. Um, but that said, you know, again, I don't want to translate to the lowest common denominator. Re give readers more credit than you give readers credit. And I'll give you an example, which is the main character of one of the novels I wrote. Uh, no, sorry, not novels I wrote, novels I translated. His name is Bai Xiaochun, and that's a very meaningful name because Bai means white, mm -hmm. Xiao means little or small, Chun means pure. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very kind of cute and distinctive name. Well, guess what? it goes completely contrary to his personality because he's a mischievous and very cowardly and uh, underhanded kind of scoundrel character. So later on, what happened is the uh, the readers of the novel, they switched every single character in his name. So instead of Bai, they call them Hei, which is black. Instead mm -hmm. of Xiao, they call them Da, which means big, instead of Xiao, which means small. And instead of Chun, they called him Wu, which mm -hmm. means um, like... Um, impure basically or or dirty so they changed the readers in chinese in the comment section of the novel started calling him hey Dawu, which is the opposite of his real name it's really funny like clever thing mm -hmm. in fact it was so clever that the author eventually had some characters in the novel call him that as well okay. so it was really funny so i put that information into a footnote of the translation and i told people i told the readers i said hey just so you know hey Dawu is the opposite of his real name and i explained it and mm -hmm. then i said Everybody who really likes this novel and is really cool, you can start referring to the character by this and remember what it means. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the people who aren't really big fans are, are going to always wonder what you're talking about. And that's exactly what happened was the readers, the, the readers really liked it. They, they started using Hey Da Wu in the comments to talk about the character. And then several hundred chapters later, people, a lot of other readers were starting to say, who is this Hey Da Wu character? Well, we've never seen him in the novel. Hmm. 
So the point is the readers can remember the meanings of the character's name if it's um, relevant, I think. Yeah, and I know nothing about translation, so I really can't. All, all I can say is, as a reader, what I like to get, I, I, I say I don't really have a preference. Um, I do. I sort of take it case by case, but I, I don't like like the ones that really annoy me are like when they translate kung fu as like karate when they're talking about kung fu. <laughs> you know I mean, like those yeah. kind of ones really bother me. Like when they called Huang Rong Lotus Huang. That didn't really bother me so much because I knew who it was. My only irritation was that was that name seemed so well known that it was like, that's going to confuse people now. Do you know what I mean? Like that was, uh, but as a reader, I was like, you know, Lotus Wong's pretty easy to remember. I'm not so, you know, that's not so bad. Um, but I like, I like getting an explanation. I feel like if you're going to call the character Lotus Wong, you have to explain at the beginning of the book, at the very least, this character is known as this, and this is, you're most likely going to see this name. And that's why, you know, I feel like explanations are important. I feel like sometimes they just, you're not even afforded the explanation. And then that's when, that's what tends to tick me off. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. But we've gotten pretty deep into the, the translating yeah, yeah. stuff. Sorry. So No, that's it's fine. We, I could go on and on. Yeah, that's, yeah. For, I mean, it's probably clear from the context of the conversation. But this is what Jeremy does. He translates, he translates uh, professionally. So it's, uh, um, it's, it's a subject he knows way yeah, better yeah. than I do. Um, so swinging uh, back around to the movie, um, it's definitely a recommend, and this is going to be our jumping off point um, in terms of inspiration yeah. for the magical and supernatural stuff that we're going to hopefully be adding to Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades. Yeah, and let me let me just say so people are like, if provided they've been listening this whole time, uh, <laughs> because we're on <laughs> like an hour mark now. Um, uh, that we don't know exactly what shape this is going to take. We don't, you know. Most likely, me and Jeremy are gonna. Well, we don't know how it's gonna get published yet. We don't know that. We don't know like what platform this will be published on and all that stuff. But and and so a lot of what what that means is, uh, on the one hand, um, there's a lot of unknowns. But on the other hand, we seems like we have a lot more freedom to determine what's the general scope of this going to be. And so if we want to just make this a small you know, initial dip into an expansion for Righteous Blood, it could be that. If we need more room, we can probably do that. Um, and we're sort of just hashing that out as we go. So this is a very fluid, adaptive situation. Uh, but our aim is to provide something supernatural for Righteous Blood with displays because people have been asking for that. And we've kind of long known that that's going to be something that the game will probably need to do in some some way. Um, and And this is the first movie. And... I think in the coming months we'll be going over other movies. I already kind of know what I think the next film should be, but I'm going to talk with Jeremy about that to see what his feeling is, and we can, you know, we'll we'll, we'll settle on a film. Um, obviously, availability is going to be an issue too, because some of the better movies are just simply not available in formats where both of us would be able to watch them. Um, so, so yeah. So I don't know anything else to add about the movie. I, I, I don't. Know, I feel like we've talked a lot about everything. Yeah, I think that covers it pretty well. It is available for the time being free if you have Amazon Prime. So you can go ahead yeah. and check that out. And the subtitles are, uh, even though they might not be the best, they're they're pretty good. And yeah. make sure to follow me on social media or you know subscribe to my newsletter or whatever it is to keep in touch as we go along with this project. What Brennan was getting at but didn't directly say is uh, Osprey, the original publisher of Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, is not going to be 
publishing this. Um, but they gave us the go ahead to do whatever we wanted. Um, their, I guess their release schedule is backed up for for years in terms of the re release. If we if we did this to them, it would come out so it would be three years from now, and it would yeah. be it, it just didn't make any sense based on what they were saying. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, but uh, but I think at least that was my understanding. I could be wrong, it, you know. But um, but yeah. So so we'll we'll be in. And again, it might. I we don't know what that means in terms of what it's going to look like and all this. But it'll. I I, I think. Uh, but it'll it'll. It, it will still be following probably a lot of the same formats and stuff. So, um, but, but yeah, the movie, like, like Jeremy said, it's a, I recommend the Blu-ray if you want the clarity of the image. I recommend the DVD if you want the witty subtitles. I thought the subtitles on the, the I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but the DVD that I have that I like is like, it's got like a red cover. Um, it's quite, you know, it's got a very striking, nice sort of cover with, I think like, uh, like all the cast members in costume on the front. Um, the Blu-ray is good too, which is the subtitles I feel are a little underwhelming if you've seen the, the DVD before that. Um, so yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll head out and, uh, until next time we will talk to you later. With the laughter comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel. Dead or insane as you start.